On Wednesday nights, we were talking about the Bible. And on this side of spring break, I had this nicely divided into two parts. I like things nice and neat and even. And on the front end of spring break, we were talking about the doctrine of Scripture. We're still doing that. We planned on the other side of spring break to talk about hermeneutics, how to interpret the Bible. And since we had a weather issue last week, that completely ruined my schedule. And we're just going to press on. We're going to pick up tonight with what we would have talked about last week, which means we're going to spend one Wednesday night after spring break talking about the doctrine of the Bible. We'll combine a few things uh, as we begin to think about hermeneutics. These are the issues we're talking about on this side of spring break plus one week now. Inspiration, inerrancy, perspicuity, authority, necessity, sufficiency. We've covered those doctrines. Tonight we're talking about the power of the Bible, the power of God's Word, and then next week, unity, and the week after spring break, the beauty of Scripture. So our theme tonight is the power of the Bible. There are occasions in human history where people stand up and they deliver a talk, a speech, uh, whatever you want to call it, and we look back on those speeches and we say, that was a powerful speech. And I'll just give you a few examples here. 1963, Martin Luther King said, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. You know the words and the speech that followed was a powerful speech. In 1940, Winston Churchill said, we shall fight on the beaches, on the landing grounds, in the fields, and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills, and we shall never surrender. And his countrymen knew that it was a powerful speech. 1863, Abraham Lincoln said, Government of the people, by the people, for the people, shall not perish from the earth. The speech that followed was powerful. 1933, FDR, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. 1939, Lou Gehrig stood up and said, Today I consider myself the luckiest man on the face of the earth. All of these examples of people standing up and delivering a speech and we look back on it with historical perspective and we say that was a powerful speech. It's a a fair way to use that word. It's a fair description to give to a, a moving, memorable, timely piece of communication. But that's not really what we're talking about when we say we're talking about the power of the Bible. We don't just mean it's memorable We don't just mean it has some nice catchphrases. We don't just mean that it's fitting for a particular time. We don't just mean that it's, it's impactful for some people going through certain things. We don't mean any of the things we mean when we say, well, that was a powerful speech. We mean something completely different. We're going to try to make sense of that tonight. We'll start with a quote from James Montgomery Boyce. He says this about the Bible. The Bible changes us. We become different men and women as a result of encountering it. That's sort of the the nutshell version of what we mean when we say the Bible is powerful. It is powerful to change us, to move us from death to life, and to move us from unholiness towards holiness. 
the process of sanctification. So we've done this several different ways on Wednesday nights. Some weeks we've started with theology and then we've moved to the scriptures. Some weeks we've started with the scriptures and then moved to theology. And that's what we're going to do tonight. We're going to start with the Bible itself. So take your copy of the scriptures. We're going to look at all these verses. We're going to read them. I know that many of these verses, as you look at that list, you think, oh, I know what that one says. And I'm just asking you, open your Bible and let's read these verses from the pages of Scripture. Genesis 1, verse 1 to 5. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, this is God's word, let there be light. And? There was light. God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and there was evening, and there was morning on the first day. We could keep reading, but you get the the sense of Genesis 1. Look at John chapter 1 in the New Testament. John 1, it's the New Testament parallel to the passage we just read. John 1, beginning in verse 1, going to verse 3. Scripture says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. One more passage. Flip over to the right. Look at Hebrews chapter 11. We'll read verse 1, 2, and 3. Hebrews 11, verse 1. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, by faith, the people of old received their commendation. By faith, we understand. You understand that those two things go together. Faith and understanding are not two separate things. You don't have to check your understanding at the door when you have faith. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. The Latin phrase that you're probably familiar with is creation ex nihilo. God created everything that exists out of nothing. He didn't start with anything. He started with nothing. One of my favorite theologians says Nothing is not just blackness. It's not just darkness. It's not just emptiness. Nothing is nothing. You can't attach a label to nothing. He says, nothing is what sleeping rocks dream of. Nothing. That's what he started with. And he spoke, and the word of God in all of its power brought into existence everything that is seen out of things that are not seen out of nothing. And it's really clear when you read Genesis and when you read John and when you read Hebrews and when you read through the book of Psalms, it was not hard for him to do it. It was not taxing. It was not difficult. And it's way different when you read the creation story in Genesis and you compare it 
to other Near Eastern, ancient Near Eastern creation myths. All the people who lived around the Hebrews had myths about creation. They all had a story about what happened in the beginning. And all of those stories involve struggle and fighting and conflict and battle and back and forth. And there's none of that in the Genesis account. There's just Almighty God opening his mouth and he speaks. And whatever he says comes into existence. And he sees it and it's good. And at the end of the process of creation, he rests. It's not like me going home on a Sunday afternoon laying on the bed and sleeping because I'm tired. It's not like you after a long day of work going home and sitting in the recliner and kicking your feet up because you're tired. He rests not because he needs to rejuvenate, not because he needs to replenish. He rests because he's done. He's finished. So his resting is a ceasing from creation. He creates everything out of nothing, and he does it by speaking. Look at Isaiah 55. Isaiah 55. We'll read verse 10 and 11. The prophet says this, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose. It shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. God says the rain comes and it accomplishes a purpose. Waters the ground, moistens the earth, the plants grow up, the vegetation sprouts. He says my word is like that. It goes out from my mouth and it accomplishes the purpose that I have for it. It's clear from the book of Isaiah that sometimes God's purpose in speaking is to harden hearts. That's clear from Isaiah 6. It's also time, uh, also true that sometimes God's word goes out to break hearts, to convict hearts, to turn hearts. That's also true from the book of Isaiah. But what's true in all of it is that when God speaks, it accomplishes the purpose that he has. That's not true for me all the time. There's times in my house where I say, pick up your bedroom. And my purpose is not accomplished. And I say, hang your towel up on the towel rod. And I walk in there and my purpose is not accomplished. There's the towel right on the floor. You say things to people driving up and down 42nd Street. And sometimes your purpose is not accomplished. They don't listen to you. The nerve of those people. God says when he speaks, his word is powerful in such a way that it accomplishes the purpose that he has in speaking. It's powerful. Look at Romans chapter 1. Look at the New Testament. Romans 1 verse 16 Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. If you flip just a few pages to the right, he says something very similar in 1 Corinthians 1. 
1 Corinthians 1, verse 18, he says, The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. The gospel, the word of the cross, Paul says, is powerful in the lives of the people who are being saved by that gospel, by the word of the cross. It is powerful to accomplish salvation. Flip over to the right. Look at Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews 4, verse 12. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart, and no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Look, in the United States, there's often conversations and debates. You hear them around Supreme Court Uh, confirmations and uh, appellate court uh, uh, nominations and and, uh, approvals and all the such. People saying, what do you think about the Constitution? Is it a living document or not? Is it a dead document or a living document? And traditionally, the conservative justices say, well, it's not a living document. It has a meaning, and that meaning's rooted in history, and it's rooted in grammar and the words of the text and what the the authors uh, originally intended for it to say, that's how we ought to interpret the Constitution. And there's another camp, a more progressive camp, that says, no, it's a living document. It's sort of morphing as we go, and it's updating, and we can find new things in there, and we can sort of reinterpret interpret it and approach it differently than maybe the original authors intended. That's not really the point of Hebrews 4. Is it a living document or a dead document? We can talk about interpretation after spring break. The point here is to say it is living and active. It is powerful to cut people to the heart. And you can get in all sorts of third-level debates about what does he mean when he talks about the division of soul and spirit and joints and marrow, and you can get in the weeds and all that. Here's what he's really saying. The Word of God is powerful to cut right to the core of who you are as a person. It exposes you. One theologian said, the Bible is not just a book we read. It's a book that reads us. It's powerful. We're exposed When we approach this book, we have to give an account to the one who inspired this book. Flip over to the right. Look at the book of James. James chapter 1, verse 18. James says, of his own will, he's speaking of God, of God's own will, he brought us forth. That's the language of birth. He brought us forth. We're talking about regeneration. God, of his own will, brought us forth, he caused us to be born again or regenerated by the word of truth. And if you just flip a few pages to the right, you'll see the same thing in 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter 1 beginning in verse 23. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through, you've been born again through the living and abiding word of God, for all flesh is like grass and its glory like the flower of of grass, the grass withers, the flower fails, but the word of the Lord remains forever. The word of God is powerful to bring about regeneration in the life of sinners. When we are dead in our trespasses and sins, it's the word of the cross, it's the gospel, it's the word of God that brings us forth. 
the Spirit of God uses the Word of God to bring us forth and to cause us to be born again, to cause us to be regenerated. One last passage, Revelation 19. Revelation 19, beginning in verse 11. John writes this, I saw, a new, uh, I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth, from the mouth of the one who is called the word of God, comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings, and Lord of Lords. Look, one of the Wednesday nights after spring break, we're going to talk about hermeneutics, how you interpret the Bible. And we're going to talk about how do you interpret apocalyptic language like the book of Revelation? How do you make sense of it? And without laying that whole lesson in front of you, just look at some of the images used to communicate power. Eyes like fire, many diadems on his head. He has a name that no one knows but himself. Right? In, the, in the ancient world, knowing someone's name gave you some measure of power or control or authority over them. Nobody knows it but himself. His robe dipped in blood. He's called the word of God. He's got the armies of heaven with him on white horses. He's got a sharp sword from his mouth. Makes you think of Hebrews. He's going to strike down the nations. He'll rule them with a rod of iron. He'll tread this wine press. He's the king of kings in the Lord of Lords. It makes you think of 2 Thessalonians 2 where Paul says that when Christ returns, he will destroy the Antichrist with the breath of his mouth. That little picture you see on social media of Jesus and Satan arm wrestling, there will be no arm wrestling match at the end. Just the word of God accomplishing its purpose. It will not return void. It will accomplish the purpose he has for it. It will be the destruction of of his enemy, the Antichrist. Let's think about the power of the Bible. Try to put all this together. Number one, the authority of Scripture and the power of Scripture are related complementary ideas. These two things go together. We've already talked about authority. When you talk about the authority of the Bible, what you're really saying is that the Bible, the Word of God, has the right or the standing to be an authority over you. God's word has the authority to tell us what is true and wrong and right and wrong and good and bad, how we ought to live, how we ought to change. The Bible has that authority. It has that right. When we talk about the power of the Bible, it's a similar idea, but it's slightly different. What we're really saying is that the word of God is able, it is capable of producing change in his people. Authority, the word of God has the right to tell us how to change. Power, the word of God is capable of changing us. Let me give you a few examples, a few illustrations of these two ideas, authority and power. Think about siblings. How many of you have siblings? 
How many of you are the oldest sibling? Amen. How many of you are not privileged to be the oldest sibling? I'm sorry. Life's tough. These are my kids, okay? Emma, Noelle, Amelia, Clayton, working right to left. Emma's 14, Noelle's 11, Amelia's 9, Clayton's 6. If you're the oldest sibling, you have some degree of power over your younger siblings just because of size and brute strength and wisdom and favor from the Lord and all of those things. You have some measure of power over them. What you don't have as an older sibling is real authority. Parents have authority, but you're just the older sibling. And sometimes older siblings have to be reminded, you're in the sibling group, you're not in the parent group. right? You don't have the authority you think you have, and they just kind of roll their eyes and look at you and say, yeah, but I have power. And what that usually results in when you have power but not real authority is just tyranny and domination and oppression and suffering and bullying and all the rest, okay? Let me give you another example. I'm not going to show you a picture of this, although I could have taken a picture last night. I want you to think about parents in public with their children. Last night, we took Emma down to get pictures made. The rest of us were eating at torchies while they went around the corner for basketball photos. And there was a family there. They had one kid. It's their only child. We know them. They are not members of Emmanuel. And they had their one child there eating dinner. And their child came over and was playing with our kids, our three younger kids. And it was great. It was fun. My, our kids loved it and, and he loved it. But then the time came for him to have dinner. And his parents who have rightful authority as parents, said to their son, hey, it's time for dinner, come over here. And he said, what do you think he said? No. And what do you think they did? They ate dinner without him. And about every two or three minutes, they would say, hey, come over here. And he would say, no. They had authority to do something, but they refused to exercise power. They had the authority, the kid had the power, and the whole situation was chaos, absolute chaos. Let me give you one more example. Think about human governments, human governments. Sometimes in the world you see a government that has rightful authority, but for different reasons has very little power. They are the people who ought to be in control. They have the rightful authority to rule. They just don't have the ability to do what it is that they need to do. And sometimes you see the exact opposite. You see people who have no real authority, no real right to be in power. They've gotten there because of corruption or deceit or manipulation or whatever, but they exercise great power. No authority, but they have power. Both of those situations are recipes for disaster. What we're saying when we talk about the Bible is that it has both authority and power. God's word has the right because it is breathed out by God. The scriptures are inspired. It is God's living word. It is inerrant without any mistake, without any error, without any contradiction. It has authority to tell us what is right and wrong, true and false, good and bad. And it is powerful to produce change in the lives of God's people. It has authority and power, and these two ideas 
go together. Here's another thing you need to understand. The people of God should expect the Spirit of God to work through the Word of God. God's people should expect God's Spirit to work through God's Word. The Spirit inspired the Bible as the Spirit carries out His job of bringing conviction about sin and righteousness and judgment on human beings, he does that, the Holy Spirit does that work of bringing conviction to people through the Scriptures. And we have no illusion that the Holy Spirit will bring conviction onto people's life apart from the Scriptures. The Scriptures taught, the Scriptures discussed, the Scriptures preached, the Scriptures sung, the Scriptures talked about, whatever you want to say, the Holy Spirit works through the words of Scripture that he inspired to bring conviction to people. Calvin has a great, great, great quote. He says this, God did not bring forth his word among men for the sake of a momentary display intending at the coming of his spirit to abolish it. Rather, he sent down the same spirit by whose power he had dispensed the word to complete his work by the efficacious confirmation of the word. Translation, Don't expect the Spirit of God to work apart from the Word of God. When you think about the masses of people, the millions of people who live all around the world and have no access to the Scriptures, do not hold out any hope that the Holy Spirit will somehow work mystically, miraculously, mysteriously to save those people apart from the teaching or the reading or the proclamation or the communication of the Word of God. The Spirit of God works through the Word of God. One last thought. The power of the Bible should not be understood as some sort of magic. When we say it's powerful, we, we do not mean that this is like a, a book that we can manipulate and harness for our own ends. Okay, Think about um, the Harry Potter movies. If you don't feel bad thinking about those movies. Think about Doctor Strange, okay? Think about a movie that has magic in it. This is my point, okay? In these movies, in these books, in these stories, there's worlds of magic. And there are texts. There's books, all sorts of books, and they have words in these books. And the words in these books, these magic books, have power. And all you have to do is know the words or read the words Say them out loud, say them in the right order, say them the right way, say them standing on one foot with your right toe wrapped with a string around it and your hand on your whatever. You do it the right way and it works. That's not what we mean when we talk about the Bible. This is not a a power that you and I harness. This is a power that harnesses us. This is not a power that we control and manipulate. This is a book, we read the voice quote earlier, that changes us. It's not something that we control and we manipulate. You know as well as I do that people sit in this room on Wednesday nights, on Sunday mornings, they sit in Sunday school classes all over this building and buildings just like it all over the world. And they're bored to tears when people talk about the scriptures. That happens all the time. People hear the word of God taught, proclaimed, discussed, shared, sung, and it bores them to tears. It's not magic. It's not like if we can just get them in the room and say the right words, we cast some sort of spiritual spell over them, and then we've got them. That's not how it works. You have talked to people 
about the Bible and you have thought to yourself in mid-sentence, I might as well be talking to the wall. Like you see their eyes roll back in their heads and you just think this, there's, this is not working, right? But I hope that you've also had experiences like I have where you look at somebody and you think that that's what's about to happen, but you start to talk to them about the, the scriptures and their eyes aren't rolling back in their heads. They're just locked in listening to you. And you share the gospel with somebody, just plainly and simply. There's a holy God out of love for sinful human beings. He sent his son to die on a cross as a sacrifice for your sins. And he tells you to repent and believe. And you share that with somebody and they say, I'll do it. And you say, what? Let me say that again. They're like, no, I heard you. I'm in. The, the word of God is powerful. I could tell you stories of people I know, close friends, who have been walking down paths of sin and destruction, and I've tried to reason with them, and I've tried to guilt them, and I've tried to manipulate them, and I've tried to outsmart them, and they won't listen to anything. Their heart is just hard. And then somehow, someway, they encounter the Scriptures, and they just melt. That's the power of the Word of God. I can argue till I'm blue in the face. It didn't change anything. But when God sends forth his word, it accomplishes his purpose and he can change hearts and he can do it through the scriptures. How do we apply this to our lives? Number one, we should be eager to read the Bible. Eager to read it. Americans love to read books that work or at least that we hope work or we think that they'll work. Just go to the bookstore and look in the self-help section or the money management section or the weight loss section. Somebody's buying all those books. I mean, there's just shelf after shelf after shelf after shelf of all those books. They don't put them on the shelf if nobody's buying them. People buy them thinking, I hope this works. I hope it makes my bank account bigger. I hope it makes my waistline smaller. I hope it makes my family happier, whatever. We're looking for something that works. What I'm saying to you is this book is powerful. It's not magic. You will not control it. But it is a powerful book, and it accomplishes the purpose that God has for it. St. Augustine, life was completely changed for him when he was reading the Bible. Just reading the Bible, life was changed. Martin Luther, reading the Bible in a castle in Germany. His life was completely changed. John Wesley, meditating on Scripture, his life completely changed. It's powerful. We should read it. Secondly, we should be committed to preach the Bible. Every church in the Bible Belt thinks they do this. Tacking a Bible verse onto your thoughts is not preaching the Bible. Tacking a Bible verse onto here's five ways to help this in your life is not preaching the Bible. Using the Bible as if it's some sort of supplemental power to accomplish whatever it is we want to accomplish is not preaching the Bible. In the United States, churches try to jump, uh, jump on cultural trends for preaching ideas. They try to jump on what's a popular TV show or movie for preaching ideas. They 
Uh, try to think about how can we be catchy in our decoration and our theme in the room and all these things. And the one thing they don't have is the Bible. They got great decorations. They got catchy sermon titles. They got all sorts of steps for what you can do. They don't have the power of the Word of God. They leave people with, here, do these three things and your life will be better. That's not the message of the Bible. That's not the message of Scripture. There's no power in that. There's just a low-grade guilt of, am I doing those things well enough? It's all on our performance. We should preach the Bible. If you're a real pragmatist, this is what you preach. And you realize, I don't have anything to say to these people. I don't have anything brilliant that's earth-shattering or life-changing or revolutionary. You're just going to preach to them and tell them what the Bible itself says. Third, we should be passionate about missions. I thought about this earlier today, and I thought about, uh, I almost wish I could change it. Instead of passionate, how about optimistic or confident in missions? When we go to Kenya or Toronto or Alaska or across the street or Arlington or wherever it is we go to share the good news of Jesus, we are not confident and optimistic because we think that we're going to run into people who want God. Those people don't exist. The Bible says there are no people seeking for God. There are no people looking for God. We don't think that we're going to find them out there. What we think, what we know, what we believe is that we have a book, we have a word, we have a gospel, we have the word of the cross, and it is powerful. And it is powerful enough to take people who aren't looking for God and to cause them to be born again so that they love God and they have a heart for God and they believe in God and they want to follow after Jesus Christ. So we're confident when we go out on mission. Fourthly, I think we should be devoted to prayer. Prayer. Maybe the greatest strength of the church in the West is learning. We have a lot of learning. There are Bible resources galore that you can access for free, that you can pay thousands of dollars for. There are books, there are commentaries. Any question that you may have, you can find an answer to it somewhere. We have learning, 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 learning. What we often lack in our context, especially when you compare it to believers around the world, is power. And I think the reason we often lack power is because we refuse in our pride and our arrogance to come to God and to say, God, we have no power and we need you to give it to us. We think that we're sufficient. Our learning is so great. Our Greek skills and our Hebrew diagramming and our systematic theologies and all the rest are so great. We think learning is all we need when what we really need to be is dependent on God to ask him for power, to ask him for help. And to that end, we'll end with a, a quote, one more quote from James Boyce. He says, To know God, we must be taught from the Bible by the Holy Spirit. It is only then that a full awareness of the nature of the Bible and its authority is borne home on our minds and our hearts, and we find ourselves taking a firm stand upon that cherished revelation. We'll end with prayer.